Hey, Southwinds family. This is Pastor Chris, your children's pastor, and I get a chance to bring the sermon for you this week. But before we do, I wanted to give you a little uh, reminder here to follow us on social media. This week, we're going to have a very special Thanksgiving video from our Southwinds team. I don't want you to miss it. Make sure you check it out. And also to let you know what's coming up uh, for Christmas Eve, we've got some very exciting ideas about what's going to happen with Christmas Eve, and we're going to be needing a bunch of volunteers and a bunch of help, so be looking out for that. Now, as we're getting in our sermon here, I wanted to think about what this generation of kids is going to be telling their grandkids about the year 2020. Can you imagine what they're going to have to say? And, and all, the, all the things that have gone on, it seems like the world was just fine until we all tried to raid Area 51. <laughs> Some people have said that Tiger King is about the most normal part of 2020. And that if 2020 were a bag of potato chips, they would be toothpaste and orange juice flavored. You think about what's happened with the California fires and the Australian bushfires, uh, no toilet paper, King J- Kim Jong-un dying and coming back, murder hornets and the election. But we did get $1,200. And I've often made this pinky promise with kids. I'll have them hold their pinky out and we kind of make this pact together and I'll tell them, I, listen, I don't know what's going to happen in your life, but I can promise you one thing, that times are going to be hard. Because you're not always going to get your way. It's going to, you're going to be disappointed in life. You won't always get what you want. And the reason I know that is because Jesus promised, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus promised us that we will have difficulties in this world. And so trying to help you out, mom and dad, to get out of your kid's head that things will always go well for them, that their life is always going to be comfortable and easy. And uh, so you're welcome. But Peter's letter here in the book of 1 Peter is talking about living this beautiful life as an exile on the earth, enduring suffering, because this is not our home. And so we're going to look at Jeremiah 29. Now, this was written during the actual exile of the Jews in Babylon. And we really like verse 11. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, many of you know this, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. And see, we don't realize that that promise was made to a certain people at a specific time. It was a promise to bring the Jews back home from exile after 70 years of being in captivity in Babylon. You see, these Jews were in literal exile. They were conquered by the Babylonians, dragged off to a foreign city for 70 years. And it was the judgment of God for disobedience. And I like to call it kind of a 70-year timeout. Well, that was in about 600 BC. So six or 700 years later, Peter, follower of Jesus, is writing to believers in Jesus who are suffering for him, and he's calling them to act like exiles, to live a beautiful life enduring the suffering on earth because this is not our home. And if you remember at the beginning of the series, the first Peter series, Pastor Mike used the illustration of three different groups. He said there's immigrants, those who are latching onto the values of the culture, someone who's seems to make their new country a permanent home. He said there's a tourist, someone who likes to visit, but they kind of stay detached from culture with no real connection to it. And then there's exiles, someone whose home is somewhere else, but they have to live somewhere for a little while. They work for the good of the city that they're in, but they look forward to going back home. And so they're kind of this dual citizen living in one place for a while, but home is somewhere else. And that's what the Bible is calling us to be. That's what Jeremiah was telling these exiles. And I'm looking at verse 4 through 7 of chapter 29 because he's writing this to, to elders and priests and prophets and all the people. You see, Jeremiah was still living in Jerusalem. To those, and he's writing to those people who were ripped away from their home in the promised land and dragged to exile in Babylon. And this is what he says, verse 4 through 7. says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. You see, God is calling through Jeremiah, calls biblical exiles to build homes, plant gardens, get married, pray for the good of the city, seek its welfare, redeem a bad situation, to take the good gifts of life from the Lord as reminders of your home in the promised land. He says, live a beautiful life by a peace ethic for a time in exile. Seek the prosperity of your exile city because by it you too will prosper. Now that's important because notice what Jeremiah did not Tell us, he told us not to do or didn't tell us to do. Number one was to fall in love with the Babylonian culture and fully assimilate to its lifestyle. So just as us, we're not supposed to fall in love with the worldly lifestyle and to fully assimilate. Number two, he also said, don't rebel and resist and think that you can change Babylon or expect Nebuchadnezzar to be a godly king. Don't think that you can make Babylon into heaven. Number three, don't hide away or pull, uh, pull completely away and have no interaction and just retreat from culture. You see, that's the context that Peter has set for us in the first four chapters of his letter. And so today, as we move on to chapter five, the question is, how then does the New Testament church structure itself to live like exiles? And so he begins chapter five kind of with this idea like, oh yeah, and you're going to need to know this. And so he begins with this importance of solid church structure to see the church through these times of suffering. You see, Jeremiah's exiles were under the ruthless rule of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian Empire. Peter's exiles were under the crushing thumb of Caesar's Roman Empire. But for us, our exile looks a little different. It may be corporations and politics and mass media and entertainment and big tech and education, those kinds of things. A powerful, secular culture that's more and more oppositional to living out the gospel. You see, Peter is making the point that we don't belong to this worldly empire. We are part of a spiritual kingdom with a great shepherd named Jesus as our king. And so the big idea we're looking at today is this. The beautiful life is more about trusting in spiritual leadership than worldly leadership. And so let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So let's look at a few of the responsibilities that Peter lays out for us, the responsibilities of spiritual leadership. And number one would be a willingness to suffer. So Peter calls himself a fellow elder. Even though he would have, as an apostle, a higher position, he wants to show solidarity with the church leadership as an extension of his own apostolic authority. And so as we'll see, even all of that falls under the chief shepherd, Jesus. And so it goes Jesus, then apostles, then elders. And so he says, I'm a fellow elder. I'm a, I'm a witness of Christ's sufferings, sharing in the suffering of Christ. I, I share in the glory also of Christ, that we're all in this together. And as Christ suffered, 
on the cross, as Peter suffered because he was crucified upside down, as elders would suffer and be jailed, as then we all suffer. So Peter's letter makes very clear that we are all to suffer for righteousness. And we're going to. That's a pinky promise. You see, the first four chapters, just as Christ suffered and was glorified, so will we. Suffering and glory, they go together. We cannot have glory without suffering. Because if Jesus didn't escape it, why should we think we will? A student is not greater than his teacher. And so in chapter 5, being about spiritual leadership, all of this follows straight from the previous section. If you look in, in verse 1 there, it says, So, and that can also be translated, therefore. And, you know, they always say when you see a therefore, you have to know what it's there for. Well, here it's referring back to the previous idea. What would that idea be? Pastor Mike shared it last week. Chapter 4, verse 17, it says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, scholars think that Peter here may have been thinking of the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was an exile prophet. He was in Babylon with all of the exiles 600 years before. And so in Ezekiel chapter 8 and 9, he, he's saying that God is going to judge those who did not grieve the unrighteousness done in Jerusalem. In chapter 9, Ezekiel has a vision, a, a command is given by God to seven angels to execute the judgment in, in Jerusalem. And he says that there's evil happening in Israel. There's worshiping false gods and child sacrifice and ritual prostitution, unjust kings, all of those things. And in chapter 9, verse 6, he says, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. That's where the judgment began. And so for Ezekiel, an exiled prophet, he says God will cleanse his people first. And he holds them responsible for not grieving the sins of the nation. And have you not grieved that our nation seems to be falling into the same traps as ancient Israel? The worshiping of created things rather than a creator. Rejection of God's ways and doing what's right in our own eyes. Sacrificing children to a false God of convenience and choice. Worshiping sensuality and pleasure. Unjust kings and, and rulers. The wholesale rejection of God's laws and institutions. This is where worldly leadership has brought us. So and therefore, we need spiritual leadership that's willing to suffer for righteousness. The second responsibility of spiritual leadership is a love for God's sheep. The Bible here uses, uh, these verses uses three words uh, in the original language of Greek. One is for elder, it's presbyteros. It's, it's not about age, but it's rather spiritual maturity. The second would be overseer, episkopos. This is used kind of as the word bishop. And the third is shepherd, poimen. This is used as the word pastor. And all three are used in these verses. And you see that some denominations, they'll split these into different offices, but they're used interchangeably in these verses and others. And so for here, us at Southwinds, we believe that there's no difference in these offices, that an elder is a pastor is an overseer. Now, for us, we're not all that into titles. You know, we've settled on the idea of pastor. We like that best because it kind of has this idea of a, of a shepherd over a flock. Now, you'll notice that Pastor Mike, now he has his PhD. So you can call him pastor, or I'm sorry, you can call him Dr. Nolan, but don't. He doesn't really like it very much. But uh, now for me, I only have my Masters of Divinity. But if you'd really want to, you can call me Divine Master. But only if you feel led to. Just kidding. But you need to notice that how the way that we organize at Southwinds is very different than the way worldly organizations would organize. We don't major on boards and committees and voting and bureaucracy. None of those things are in the Bible, and they're just about as efficient in churches as they are in government. But we say we are pastor-led and elder-guarded. 
We have a yearly business meeting, family business meeting. We affirm elders to one-year terms and they can serve for six years. And we have pastors and we have non-staff elders and that's our decision-making body for the church. And if you were to take our Discovery 101 class, hopefully we'll be able to have one soon. You can learn the four ways that our church likes to organize. And we do this differently than the way that the, the world organizes their organizations. Four main elements to the spiritual organization of our church. The first one is a fellowship. Now, fellowship maximizes the common goal of the gospel. It doesn't maximize our differences, you know. That's why we don't vote on things. And I could tell you a story about being in another church where we actually had a discussion on, in a business meeting on, and there was a vote when we, had a, when we built a new building on whether we would take the wood spoons or the metal spoons over to the new building. No joke. And there was division over it. And we see just in our culture right now, look at how divisive voting is in the political realm. It creates winners and losers and it highlights disagreements. And listen, that's fine for nations, but not for the church. We're also, number two, a family. Well, family builds trust because of strong relationships and loyalty. Families focus on relationships and not rules. That's why the Bible makes the qualification for a pastor to have a strong family life, to lead it like a family. Not like a dictator and not like a king and not like sensei from Cobra Kai. The third one is a body. You know that we are a body. We're not a business. We work together. You know how your body works, all parts having a different role with a very common purpose. So in our body, we want to see where God has gifted you, where you can serve, knowing that we need each other. We rely on each other like a body would. And number four is a flock. This is where we get appointment, pastor, shepherd. It's the importance of the flock gathering together. That's why we need to be together to prevent isolation. That's why we're going crazy in this purple tier, being back online, but hopefully you're able to come in the next couple weeks at 10 o'clock outside. But that's why Peter says in verses 3 and 4, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory because Jesus is our great shepherd. The pastors are the under shepherds caring for the needs of the flock. Now, you can see how different this is uh, from the worldly model of leadership. There's not a whole lot of TED Talks out there from the corporate world about treating your organization like a fellowship or a body or a flock. Now, they may try to present themselves like a family, but we know it's not the same without a heavenly father. And so Peter then addresses, soon after this, then the three traps of leadership. There's, there's ways that leadership can, can trap a leader in its duty, money, and power. And we'll see examples of how spiritual leadership looks differently, again, from worldly leadership. Look at the idea of, of duty. Peter says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. He says, I want you to serve, not begrudgingly, but with passion for your calling. True leadership is responsibility, not privilege. He says, I don't want you to get caught up in a trap of money. He says, Peter says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. He, wants, he says, I want you to be eager to give, not to get. And number three is power. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, serving not for status or lording it over others, but sacrificially. And that's what he's calling spiritual leadership to be. And it's not just pastors and elders. That's what, if you're a leader in the church, that's what your calling is to be. Well, the third responsibility here is a desire to please Christ alone. So elders are to serve because the reward is not here on earth, but rather given in heaven as an unfading crown of glory. <laughs> so think of this. How many leaders have you seen in a corporate and political world that it's all about status, money, and power? Uh, Peter says spiritual leaders know that these things just pale in comparison 
to our reward that we're going to have in Christ. And I'll tell you, just as pastor, we haven't been here almost 12 years. I feel blessed at our church. While it's not perfect, you know, we always say no perfect people allowed. And that means pastors too, no perfect pastors allowed. But I really believe that Southwinds has a good and faithful and healthy shepherds. And because of the integrity and structure of our leadership, we don't deal with a lot of problems that other churches do. And I hope you realize how rare that is and how blessed we are. There are not a lot of churches as healthy as Southwinds. And if you're thankful for that, give me a praise God. Okay, good. Well, we've got the three responsibilities of the elders. Now we have a response from the church. And the big one here that we're going to look at this week, we'll have more next week, but the big one is to be humble. And so he says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now when he's talking about younger here, he's, he's not referring to age as much as seniority between elders and church members. It's kind of a, uh, the, the, the authority structure that they have. He's, but he's urging them to follow the spiritual leadership as appointed to the church. But notice that Peter's quick to say after all of this, he says, all of you, now this is meaning elders and youngers, he said, all of you be humble to one another because as you know, both arrogance by a domineering elder and a contemptuous church member, both of those are going to evoke God's opposition because he opposes the proud. And you know, <laughs> you don't want to go around opposing God. They used to say, your arms are too short to box God. So for Peter, mutual humility is so important in times of exiles. Those willing to put fellowship, family, body, and flock before themselves will be given grace by their father. And unity and confidence of trusting God is so needed in times of suffering and exile. And when it happens, it truly does represent the beautiful life. You see, in times of great suffering and sin, you'll follow true, true spiritual leadership or you will rely on worldly leadership. And let me ask you, is this not a huge question for our time? Will we look to worldly solutions or will we look to spiritual solutions to spiritual problems? Now next week, like I said, we're going to talk more about responsibilities for the church but as we move deeper into this chapter. But I wanted to take a minute now, if I could, and talk about, okay, what does it look like to be exiles in our current culture? So there's a Greek word out there. It's called polis. It actually literally means city, like the ancient Greek city-states. And for the believer in Christ, let me ask you, what city is our citizenship in? It's not Tracy. <laughs> it's our heavenly city. It's the new Jerusalem. If you remember, the earth began as a garden. We were to subdue it and be fruitful and multiply. But history is going to end as a heavenly city coming down to earth. And so Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and will take you to myself that, you, that where I am, you may also be. And Hebrews says, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they were seeking a homeland. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. You see, all through Scripture, our desire and heart and effort and love is to be directed toward our heavenly polis. Why? Because that's where our home is. <laughs> and so if you notice that word polis, it's also in the word politics. And so politics is literally the affairs of the city. Now, who usually cares most about the politics of the earth? Well, it would be those whose home it is. Those who make an idol of the affairs of this city, 
do so because this is all they have. But for the believer in Christ, this, understand, this is the closest to hell we will ever get. But for an unbeliever in Christ, this is the closest to heaven that they'll get. And so you can see it all over that in the secular mindset, this world, this life is all there is. And so we must push, they must push to make utopia and heaven happen here. But exiles, those of us longing for our true homeland, those knowing that we're just passing through this polis, that we don't belong here, for us, we must not cling or have too much affection or allow ourselves to worry and fret over the state of this earthly polis. You see, the affairs of this polis, politics, will all pass away, but the people of this polis are all eternal. You know that people, everybody, are going to, is going to live somewhere forever. And so exiles, us, we are to care more about the people of the polis than the affairs of the polis. You smelling what I'm cooking? Is this not something that the church needs to hear today? And boy, God's been railing on this on me in the last couple weeks. But let's go back to Jeremiah 29. Remember, God, through Jeremiah, writing to the exiles in Babylon, he says, build homes, marry, plant gardens, have children, pray for the welfare of the city. Because he says, you are in this city for 70 years. But remember, it's not your home. Show others in this foreign polis what life on earth was meant to be before the fall. Because for the time that you are there, I want you to build and pray and prosper and cooperate, even though it's worldly, but only to a point. And as soon as they make you put Babylon above God, you refuse. And that's exactly what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did when they were commanded to bow down to the statue in Babylon. That's exactly what Daniel did when he was told not to pray in Babylon. And so when you're asked to prioritize this earthly polis over your heavenly polis, cooperation is over. And as the people of God, let's stop living like this polis is all there is. Let's stop making an idol of it as if this were our eternal home. Now, you know how you know something is an idol to you. Pastor Mike has talked about this a lot. It's your reaction when it's threatened or taken away. Is it fear or dread? When, when those things that are so important to you do, you, do you get anxious and fearful because then it may be an idol. You see, those things could be very important things. It could be family and home and job and freedoms and culture that we lose. And that makes us afraid when we might lose those things. Or, and, and right, you know, those things are important. They're good things given to us by God, but they're not God things. Sometimes it's lesser things like our kids' grades or our comfortable lifestyle or activities or actually eating in a restaurant. <laughs> or it could be other things. It could be a Supreme Court seat or freedom from the purple tier or a political issue or the presidency. You see, listen, I'm not saying it's wrong to care about those things. Now, I care deeply about the affairs of this polis. I just, I dig that stuff. It's really interesting to me. And I've had to keep reminding myself during this season that political concerns are important, but they are secondary to kingdom concerns. And so I'm asking myself, do I prioritize those things at the expense of caring about the people of the polis? Am I more upset about a political decision that's outside of my control that only affects life here on earth? than I am spiritual decisions of my family and friends and neighbors that affects their eternity. You see, the people of God are not to have a temporal perspective, but an eternal one. We are to leverage temporal things for eternal impact. 
And so like the elders of Ezekiel 9 failed to do, I want to grieve the sinfulness of our culture. And so if you're going to post on social media about a polis, post about your heavenly one. I know how hard this is. I I have a hard time with it. I just told Marco this week that, you know, the worst part about being a youth pastor, I was one for 15 years, years ago, is, is seeing the ridiculous and worldly posts from former youth with who have these completely unbiblical worldviews. And I'm so tempted to post a reply, just thug life, destroy the nonsense I see all over Facebook. And you know, I'm just snarky enough to do it. But I just, I grieve instead for those who profess at one time to be Christians and who should know better than have such an ungodly worldview. But I grieve more for my unchurched friends that I see on Facebook that I grew up with who never pretended to love Jesus. And as much as I disagree with them on worldly issues, it's the spiritual issues that matter. And so I grieve that they've not heard clearly and embraced the gospel. So pray for me because I really struggled with this and I know that I've failed often. But we need to show spiritual leadership and not be a hindrance to the gospel for these people. You see, if you remember back in Peter chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus, he explained that Jesus is the stumbling block. He's the, the cornerstone, the chosen and precious one. He even says, he says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He says, a, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense is what Jesus is. He says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so Peter here, and earlier in this book, he's riffing off of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13 through 15. This is what it says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. If you're going to fear anything, fear him. And he will become a sanctuary, but also a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, a trap and a snare. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken and they shall, they shall be snared and taken. You see, he's saying that that God is a sanctuary to those who trust in him, but he's a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling, a trap and a snare to those who don't trust him. And so friends, if an unbelieving friend of yours stumbles or falls into a trap or a snare about Jesus, let it be because they know the truth about Jesus, not because of anything you've done or said. You see, your job is to bring them to Jesus, to share the gospel with them and not put any other stumbling block or stone of offense or trap in their way before you get them to Jesus. You see, if, if they choose not to fear the Lord or honor the Lord as holy or disobey the word, there's nothing you can do. But don't let them stumble and be ensnared by secondary issues about the affairs of the, this polis. You see, our political views... They, They may just trip somebody up and prevent us from proclaiming Jesus to them. And you may win the political argument, but but all that's going to pass away. And if you lose the person, what have you won? You may have lost the chance to win spiritual life for the person who will live forever somewhere. Now you can tell I'm preaching to myself here. I'm telling myself over and over, I need to use my spiritual leadership for spiritual ends because politics is a vapor. It's a worldly means to a worldly end. And so our goal is to change hearts. And we all know that true morality comes from personal regeneration, not from legislation. We all know that repentance is better than revolution and humility is better than protest. I mean, think about it. What is preferable? The Supreme Court changing abortion law or would it be 
Think of this, spiritual renewal sweeping our land with a new commitment to purity and family and the gospel such that there would be no market for abortions by convenience. There's this renewal to see the unborn as a spiritual creation, a special creation of God in his image, in the womb. You see, we, we can't change our heart with a law or a protest. Only the gospel does that. So please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that those things are wrong or that they're not important. I'm saying they are, they are important, but spiritual leadership is bringing about a spiritual goal. Let politics be the vapor that it is. Because as you know, the currency of worldly leadership is promises made. The currency of spiritual leadership is promises kept. So why don't we talk about King Jesus who keeps every promise more than we talk about promise makers. So do you care about justice? Great. Don't promote a worldly justice organization without pointing others to the God who is just. Do you care about life? Awesome. But don't put your hope in legislation without introducing them to the creator of life who knit us together in the womb. Do you care about the poor and marginalized? Terrific. But don't rely on a government program for that. You send, you help people and you tell them about the God who sees them. You care about freedom and liberty? Brilliant. But don't scream about the Constitution without calling others to pursue the God who liberates. Worship God in spirit and truth because the truth sets us free. So show people how the gospel informs your worldview. And by that, you'll be winning the person, not the argument. So I'm old enough to remember when car alarms first came out. Do you remember that? Some of you remember that. And when you heard one, remember, everyone would stop everything that they were doing and to see the thief. They were just convinced it was a carjacking. But what's happened in all the years since then? Does anybody even turn around and look at car alarms anymore? No, no, no. All, the only time we would look so that we can judge the person and say, whose alarm is that? Why is it taking so long to turn that alarm off, right? Because we know nobody's stealing that car. It's just noise. Because the car is just overreacting. It's too sensitive. It's more of an annoyance than a sincere warning and here's the thing. When we overreact to non-gospel issues, we sound like a car alarm. And people only hear us as a car alarm with secondary issues. So, they don't hear, so then they don't hear when we speak the gospel. You see, our warning should be about an eternity apart from God. That's what we should be sending the siren off, not about some stupid rant. And this requires the humility that Peter talks about here. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so Peter's trying to lift our heads to see it. He says in chapter one, verse three through five, remember how he opened the letter. He said, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that, will, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So go ahead, post, campaign, talk about, engage all you want, but do it about a new kind of polis, your true home, the place that you care most about, where Jesus is the righteous king on his throne, and there's a new Jerusalem coming to earth where there's no sun because Jesus himself lights it up, where there's a restored creation, where there's streets of gold and beautiful stones and gems everywhere, where there's a river of life flowing from the new temple, watering the trees of life and we can eat freely, where there's a renewed garden of Eden, a place where man and, dwe and can dwell with God, and where there's no more tears and suffering, no more battles with sin, no more corruption and lies, 
where we spend eternity with loved ones and each moment growing closer to the Father. <laughs> well, doesn't that sound great? Shouldn't we be talking about that? So, hold your pinky out. Make me a pinky promise. I'll make it with you. It's going to be difficult, and you're going to need some spiritual fortitude here, but let's grieve for the sins and unrighteousness of our nation because we know that there's no shortage of that here. Be willing to accept that judgment begins with God's people. Trust that the Father will refine his church, that there's this testing by fire, all the suffering that we're going through so that impurities can be removed. Then we'll be tested through this suffering. And when we live a beautiful life in the midst of it, we will be proclaiming a beautiful gospel, a rescue from this world by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to remove our sins. And with the promise of a heavenly city, a righteous king and rewards unimaginable. You see, that pinky promise won't let 2020, this dumpster fire that 2020 is, rob us of our hope. And that's my prayer for us, church. So let's cheer up. We have a heavenly polis that is calling us home. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. Thank you so much for your goodness and grace to us. Help us to have the proper perspective, Lord, in our suffering, that we may truly trust in you and be humbled, Lord, by you, that we can know you as our heavenly Father, reigning in a new city. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for all you've done. Amen. Amen.